Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Tizier, and I'm joined today by Joe Anity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good. It's uh, crazy we're already to the last point today. Last point in uh, uh, Tulip, right? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, the, the issue of Calvinism here. I, right. I did want to say before we get into it, I've been really encouraged over the last... Uh, couple of weeks just hearing feedback from people who are actually listening to this stuff so i don't know it, it feels kind of good to know that we're taking the time to do this and it's not a not a total waste you know so i do want to encourage people who are listening to these episodes um on calvinism or any other for that matter by the way we do hope to talk about a lot of things other than calvinism <laughs> right uh, to move on to here to other things but i want to encourage people to um continue to send us feedback either through face-to-face interaction or through email or you know, encouragement, questions, anything. Right. It's just nice to know that there's someone on the other end of the line uh, from time to time, and it's not just the two of us uh, <laughs> sitting here doing this, right? Talking so. into space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on that, actually, too, if you are wanting to get this, you're enjoying this content, and you're wanting to help us get this out there more, rate the podcast on iTunes. If you do that, it helps it get seen by more folks and hopefully just get this content out. So. Yeah, and, and also recommend it to others who might right, need it. That's right. really the idea is that uh, you might have a friend who's been wondering about this or that, and, and you you, rec- you see that we produce an episode on it, send it to them. You know, I, I think it's less threatening, you know, than, hey, you should maybe set up an appointment with my pastor and sit down. For, you know, that that's kind of threatening about some of these issues. It shouldn't be, but it is in people's minds, and uh, th- this could be a non-threatening thing to them. So do do recommend it. We hope yeah. that you will. Yeah. All right, well, today we are talking about the perseverance of the saints, the P in TULIP. Mm -hmm. So what does the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teach? I think if I were to state it just really simply and basically, we're saying that uh, those who have authentic faith, you know, those who come to faith authentically um, will persevere until the end. Uh, some like to emphasize the idea of preservation instead of perseverance, and so I guess stated that way, we would say that those who have authentic faith in Christ will be preserved by God until the end. And so this doctrine is really getting at that idea. Um, I think it's a very important doctrine, and what I'd like to do actually is to read again from the London Baptist Confession, as I've made a practice of doing throughout this whole um, this whole series. The reason I'm doing that, you know, just to reiterate this, it's not our authority for truth. I keep saying that because I know that's people's objection. You know, you keep going to the confession. The, the reason I'm doing it is because this is a historic confession, a historic reformed confession. So it, 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 it presents to us the way these doctrines have been understood for a long time, you know. Um, the London Baptist Confession has a lot in common with the Westminster Confession of Faith, especially on these points too, so. But it, it, I don't know, it, it's um, a clear statement, it's a thorough statement, and so I'd like to read it. Um, here is what chapter 17 of our confession says in paragraph 1, and I, and I caught myself, I have this habit of saying chapter 17, verse 1 or something. These aren't verses, these are paragraphs, it's just I'm so used to saying verses uh, because I'm interacting with the scripture so much. But uh, chapter 17, paragraph 1 of our confession says, Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, it's talking about election here, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, this is positional sanctification, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, uh, all of that is a way of saying those who have authentic faith, who, who, you know, who were elected before the foundation of the earth and who have been drawn to faith uh, in Christ Jesus, uh, those who have authentic faith can neither totally nor finally fall from, that, from the state of grace. Um, that should actually remind us of what the confession says about free will, but that's another topic for another time, I guess. Uh, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourishes. Uh, I can't say that word, can I? Nourishes. We'll just say that. I can't say the old English version of it. In them faith. So, so God nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. 
And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. God is still the same, that is. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. I just think that is, when I read that, it's yeah. like, oh, that that gets it what the scriptures teach, and it's just beautiful the way it's stated. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, it's thorough. It's kind of dealing with all of these different nuances of the doctrine of perseverance. I think a lot of times people don't like the doctrine of perseverance because they, they only understand one little part of it, you know, um, but maybe they, they are um, blind to some of the other things that are, that have historically been taught in this doctrine. Um, I think I should walk through this paragraph just a little bit to break it down a, a bit. Um, notice that from the beginning of it, this whole idea of perseverance is rooted in um, the pactum salutis and the order, ordo salutis. Uh, what I mean by that is that, um, first of all, it's rooted in the principle of election. The pactum salutis is the salvation pact made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past. It's predestination. It's election. So it's rooted in that, but it also unfolds in the ordo salutis, that is uh, the the order of salvation or, or salvation as it unfolds in history, right? So as we understand perseverance, we have to keep all of these things in mind, that that election is true and also uh, those electing purposes of God unfold in history. That is where perseverance takes place in time in our lives, you know. Um, We've been elected in Christ. We've been effectually called. We have definitive or positional sanctification and and, uh, we come to faith in Christ in our own personal life and history, right? But it's within that context that perseverance takes perseverance takes place. Um, notice the the confession points out that we cannot totally uh, fall away if we are in Christ truly. That means we cannot sin away our salvation. We cannot finally fall away. But that means that in the end, we will not be found in a condition of unbelief or of falling away. And I think that what that language does, though, is it leaves a little bit of room for the fact that sometimes Christians do stumble. Yeah, yeah. They, they struggle in the Christian life. We're not denying that. Sometimes Christians stumble and struggle significantly. So the doctrine of perseverance is not you know, um, denying that reality, but it's saying that if you are truly Christ's, elected from eternity past and called in history and exercising true faith in, in your life, if that is all true, then you will not finally nor fully uh, fall away from Christ, um, but you will be uh, preserved or you will persevere to the end. Does, does that make sense? Um, and so that that is, that is the idea here. Uh, the reasons for perseverance, well, this paragraph, 17.1, communicates that God's acts cannot be reversed. Our salvation does not depend upon us in the first place. It depends upon the decree of God. And that cannot be reversed. And he is the one who continues his work in us by producing many graces of the Spirit in us in this life. Okay. Um, but that said, there, there's also an emphasis in here in this paragraph that Perseverance is needed. The, the Christians need to be encouraged to persevere. You know, the scriptures constantly call us to persevere. Mike, continue on in Christ till the end. Do not be shaken. Run the race faithfully until the end, you know, until you lay a hold of it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Beware lest there be in you an evil and believing heart, you know, leading you to fall away from, from Christ. The scriptures constantly do that. Why? Because we live in the world, which is hostile to the things of God. We still struggle with the sins of the flesh, unbelief being one of the sins of the flesh. And the devil is our adversary still. All of these things uh, threaten us as we live in this life. You know, we have not obtained our salvation in full yet in its consummate state. So we have to be encouraged to persevere. And it's through this encouragement that God causes us to persevere. Um, So the facts of perseverance... um, 
are these. God is always the same. Okay, we, we change. We are unstable. We give in to temptation. But God is always the same. Therefore, perseverance is true. He decreed it from eternity past. He brought us to salvation. He will finish that work because he is immutable. Uh, his, his people are kept by his mighty power. Their names are engraven on his hands. Their names have been written in the book of life, his book. That's what makes our perseverance um, a sure thing. Uh, notice just the emphasis upon God. God, God, God. Mm-hmm. It's his work. Salvation is of the Lord and not of us, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, that is why our perseverance is a sure thing. And this is consistent with everything we've talked about so far right. in this. Yeah, and it's contrary to Arminianism, as, as, as many of you know, uh, which does teach that a person can fall from grace. And what the Arminian means uh, when they say that is that it's possible for a person to have true faith, to lay a hold, a hold of true salvation, to put it in another, another way, to be truly adopted as a son or daughter of God, to be truly justified, I suppose, and then having laid a hold of that truly to fall away from it and to lose it all. Um, that's Arminianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's salvation beginning with man and ending with man and being lost by man along the way. Perhaps how many times it can be gained and lost, I don't know uh, what the Arminian would say about that exactly and at what point it's lost, I don't know. Um, but that is Arminianism. It can be obtained and lost. You can actually fall from grace. Um, I think I should clarify this, though, uh, before we get too far. Um, the doctrine of perseverance or preservation is not teaching that if a person says the sinner's prayer, he or she is saved, done deal. You know what I mean? I think a lot of times people kind of misunderstand. Oh, yeah. That's definitely the that, perception, I think. You know, so so you, you Calvinists believe that if someone walked down the aisle at some church somewhere, you know, responding to an altar call and they bowed their head and they said, Dear Jesus, forgive me for my sins, that they're saved and, and that can never be lost. That's not what we're saying. Uh, after all, a person is not saved by saying the sinner's prayer. A person is saved by faith in Christ. And what is clear in the scriptures is that true faith produces fruit, you know, mm-hmm. and that true faith perseveres. True faith um, works itself out as you, and the person is found walking with Christ. So for the one who has, you know, gone down on the field at Anaheim Stadium at the Harvest Crusade and has prayed to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then walks out of there, and there's no change. There's no consistency. There's no fruit. There's, that person ought not to have a sense of assurance that, you know, and is their faith true? I mean, I'm, I'm not judging that. I don't know that we can totally judge it, but that person, if there's no change, ought not to have a sense of assurance about their salvation. Instead, they should seek true repentance and true faith, which looks different than that. Um, so, so we're not talking this, we're not talking about this like once saved, always saved sort of thing where the sinner's prayer equals salvation, done deal. No one could ever question it. We're, we're saying no, authentic faith will last until the end because God will preserve it within the life of the true authentic believer. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that leads us to perfectly to this question just to dive more into this you know whose work is this you know it's ours it's god's let's, uh, let's right. get specifics on i that. guess i've already alluded to that a bit just by the different terminology that can use either perseverance or preservation, preservation right um uh, what, what we need to see is that the doctrine of perseverance it, it is the christian who is to persevere right mm-hmm. it is the christian who is to persevere it is our work but it is a grace. In other words, it is something that we are enabled and empowered to do. Therefore, it is Christ or God who preserves us. So ultimately, it is God's work. Ultimately, it is a gift from him, but it is a work that we really do. The same thing could be said about faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Who is it that exercises faith? Is it God exercising faith on our behalf? 
No. We exercise faith. It is truly um, something that we do, but it is a spirit-wrought faith. It is a, it is a grace of God. It is a gift of God. He is the one that gives the gift of it and enables us to have it. So whose work is it? Well, we are the ones who have faith, but it is God who gives it to us. Right. Uh, the same could be said about sanctification. Who sanctifies? Well, in a sense, it is God who does it, but we certainly have a part in our sanctification. He makes mm-hmm. us holy, but nevertheless, we are to be holy. Right. Right? All, right. All, yeah. Okay. I, you know, I'm. where is it in the confession? I think it's in paragraph 2 of chapter 17. Or maybe it is in paragraph 1. Maybe it's in paragraph three. (laughs) Um, Yes, here it is. Uh, Preservation is emphasized in paragraph three, but the very end of it uh, says this, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Hmm. You know, so the language shifts back and forth in our confession throughout it. uh, On the one hand, emphasizing our perseverance and on the other hand, emphasizing God's preserving work in us. Yeah. Well, what what objections have you heard people raise against this doctrine that stick out to you? Yeah, I think it probably should be said that at least in my experience, and of course my experience is very limited. I mean, we live in Southern California in, at a particular time, right? And so I, mm-hmm. in my experience, this is the least objected to doctrine of, of the five points. You know, uh, plenty of people object to total depravity and unconditional election and especially limited atonement and irresistible grace. But um, I find much less resistance uh, in regard to the doctrine of perseverance. I think people like this doctrine, right? It, mm-hmm. It's it's comforting um, to know that, that God preserves those who belong to him and that we indeed will persevere. I mean, that's a comforting doctrine. Uh, and so I should say that at first, I, I don't hear as many objections to it but when I do hear objections to it, one of the first things that people will bring up is all of the warning passages found in the scriptures. And by warning passages, I, I mean all of those verses in the Old and New Testaments which exhort the people of God to not fall away, mm-hmm. to continue. And I think some, when they read that, they go, look at if the scriptures are exhorting us to not fall away, then it must be possible for us to fall away, right? Yeah. But I think that's to miss the point. Um, I think time and again in these passages, there is the, the, the suggestion that the, the author hopes of better things for us. You know, it's not that he's expecting true Christians to fall away and thus warning against it, but it's that he knows that true Christians will not fall away, but that God uses the scriptures and these words of warning in the life of the believer in order to persevere, uh, in in order to encourage them to persevere, in order to preserve them is what I should say. I I just preached on this. I was just going to say. Yeah. It was last Sunday from the time of our recording of this. It'll probably be three Sundays in the past by the time we post this. I don't know. Um, What was the date? Uh, The the 117th, the 17th of January. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, on John chapter 16, uh, Jesus begins that uh, that that whole section there by saying to his disciples, "I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away." Right? Did I yeah. state that properly or no? John no, sixteen. No, yeah, I was I was still thinking about the date. <laughs> Did I say the right date? <laughs> yeah, no, we're good. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the seventeenth. It was twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. That's what I meant to say. That's what I was like, wait a minute. That's yeah. anyways. <laughs> um. Yeah, we got to the bottom of that, but. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, Jesus says. And, and I see, I think we should, we should take note of this. Is there, a, is there the possibility that these 11, any of them would fall away? Uh, no. Uh, Judas fell away, and Jesus knew that he would ahead of time and, and predicted that he would. But these he would keep. That, that is emphasized throughout John 15 on through 17. These he, he would keep. And how would he keep them? Well, the means by which he would keep these true disciples of him, of his, would, would be through um, through warning, through his word. And so the point I made in the sermon is that uh, 
the way that, that God preserves his elect is by the word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So we should not be surprised when the word comes to us and says, beware, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, um, finish the race. That does not mean that it's possible for the elect to fall away. What it means is that God uses his word in the life of the elect to preserve them. Right. So here's how it works. I mean, I could be preaching on a Sunday morning and there's a hundred people in the room, you know, and and it may be that in that group, I hope this is not the case, but in that group, there are true believers and what we would call false believers. Uh, With the true believers, when they hear those words of warning in the scriptures, that resonates with them. They take the warning to heart and it, it, you know, it, it, it produces within them perseverance. Mm. But with the false or temporary believer, whatever terminology you want to use, that same word of warning doesn't resonate. It isn't heated. It doesn't have its effect. I think it's a similar concept to that of um, effectual calling, you know, the, right. the, the general call, right. the, the effectual or effective call. Um, and so these warnings are real and they are potent in the life of the believer, of the true believer. So... Hebrews three twelve, take care, brothers, right? Take care, not world, but brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's a call today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. So I suppose we can read that and say, oh, well, it warns against falling away, so falling away for the brothers must be really possible. Right. No. It is that the writer of the Hebrews is writing to the church, those who are professing Christ, and he's warning them. And, and, and with the elect, with those who are true in their faith, this word of warning will have an effect upon them. I think that's the way to understand the warning passages throughout um, throughout uh, the, the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's it. I think some look at these warning passages and they assume some things that maybe they shouldn't assume. But perhaps even more than that, people object to this doctrine because of their experience. And what I mean by that is perhaps they've grown up in the church, they've been in the church for some time, and they have watched people fall away who at one point were professing Christ. And so they're they're forced to deal with that very difficult question. What about them? How am I to understand them? You know, that they were at one point worshiping right alongside me, walking with the Lord, and they, I mean, sometimes it seems so genuine and so true and so authentic, and now they're no longer walking with Christ. I think there are two possibilities uh, for for people uh, like I've just described. One, hopefully, it is that they have stumbled, right, and that they will be restored. We pray for that. That's that possible. be a temporary, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that does happen. Non-final. Right. I've seen it as a pastor where um, people struggle deeply for a season and yet come back, you know, and that's a great joy uh, to see that happen. But it could also be that there wasn't anything authentic in them from the beginning. It only seemed to be authentic externally. I think our confession somewhere uses the language of um, temporary believers. Like, what is that about? I, I think it's this idea here that we're talking about that they appeared to believe for a time it was external. It, Judas, I mean, everyone was surprised about Judas. The other 11 were just surprised. They, they didn't suspect him. And yet Christ knew. Christ knew his heart and therefore predicted that he, he, he would indeed betray. Um, and so the, the point is this. The scriptures do tell us how to view situations like this. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, so John is dealing with this topic of apostasy. He's dealing with this issue of, of, of those who have left the faith. And he tells us how to interpret it. He does not say um, they went out from us 
though they were genuinely of us before, now they have lost their salvation. You, you get what I'm saying? Right. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He actually says the way to interpret experiences like this is to see that they went out from us in, or, in order to, uh, and in so doing, have shown that there wasn't anything authentic in them in the first place. In the first place. Right. You know, so it, the scriptures are just so uh, straightforward, I think, on, on this issue of how to make sense of those who walk away from the faith, the, the apostates. Right. Um, an apostate, by the way, I'm using that term, but an, an, an apostate is one who, for a time, professes faith, identifies himself or herself with the people of God, and even in some senses tastes of heavenly things. I think that language there in Hebrews 6, I think it is, is um, used to refer to someone who is there. I mean, they're taking the Lord's Supper. Perhaps they were even baptized. They are caught up in the worship of the church and the prayers of the church. They've been fed the word of God, you know, uh, for, for some time. They've tasted of heavenly things. An apostate is one who is like that, who has then fallen away. So they're different than just a normal non-believer who's been in the world and has always been in the world and knows nothing else but that. For someone to taste of those things and to be associated with the covenant people of God in that intense way and then to walk away from it and reject it is in some ways a worse thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that people can't be, you know, sometimes restored from a stumbling sort of episode. Uh, but but to, to, to be with the people of God in such an intense way and then to just utterly reject the things of Christ is very, I mean, Hebrews warns us about the severity of such a thing as that, you know, so uh, we have, we have to be aware of it. Mm. Uh, Apostasy is real. That's what I'm saying. Apostasy is real. People do profess Christ and then deny him. We're not, denying that reality, but what I'm saying is that the scriptures explain to us how to interpret that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is not that they were... It's a way to reveal the mystery behind, or what would be a mystery to us. Yeah, it is certainly not that they have... Not that they were legitimate partakers of grace, saving grace, and then fell from it. That certainly is not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do we how do we see uh, the doctrine of uh, perseverance in the scriptures? How would you present it from the scriptures? You know, I, I think I followed the same pattern in the last episode on um, irresistible grace, but I think it's valid to to first look at um, the way that this doctrine is implied by other doctrines clearly stated in Scripture. I think the other four points that we already covered demand that we also hold to the doctrine of perseverance. Right. I mean, it's just clear as day. All theology hangs together. I've said that before. Um, You can't consider one of these things in isolation from the other. So if it is true uh, that God has elected or predestined some for salvation from before the foundation of the earth, if it is true that we are totally depraved, therefore we come to salvation not on our own, you know, to come to faith not on our own, but by the grace of God from the beginning and that we Uh, have had our sins atoned for by Christ really fully and finally and have been effectively called to salvation, um, it it must also be true that we will be persevered to the end. Because salvation here, we're not talking about something that is left in question. We're actually talking about something earned by Christ for us. Right. In in full, it is finished. And unmerited. So like all those things fully going together. Right. See, but at the same time, it's no wonder then that the Arminian believes that you can lose your salvation because the rest of their doctrines demand that conclusion. Exactly. Salvation is something that's um, it's up in the air. Who will be saved? Well, who knows? It kind of depends on who freely chooses Christ. There is no election or predestination. It, well, they twist it into something else, you know. Um, well, it's like that bridge analogy. It's like if they have to choose to get to part of the bridge or build part of the bridge themselves— and they can choose to not build it or destroy it or yes, whatever. Yes, that's exactly it. If salvation depends upon your choice in the beginning, then certainly it follows logically that you can choose to also abandon that salvation and, right. and so on. So all theology hangs together. I think the paragraph 2 of 17, 
London Baptist Confession, chapter 17, states it well. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Christ of Jesus Christ and union with him, uh, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. The, the point of that paragraph that's also beautifully stated, I yeah, think, is. is that th- this whole idea of perseverance, it depends not upon man. Thank thank God for that. Seriously. But upon God through and through, upon his decree and upon his covenants, his oath, his promises, the abiding spirit, all, all of these things. It's, it's, it's just, it's God's work. And I could not imagine living the Christian life any other way. Mm-hmm. I mean, d- given how frail we are. I'm glad it's not our work. I'm glad our salvation doesn't depend upon us um, in the beginning, in the middle, or in the end. Right. You, you think about it. If at any point it depends upon us, then we're in trouble. I'm not saying that we don't work and that we don't contribute to the Christian life. And Again, we've already covered that, but if at any point we're found saying that well, your final and ultimate salvation depends upon you. That's not gospel. Mm-hmm. That's law. It's not good news. It's bad news. Right. And so, um, yeah, these doctrines hang together is the point. I think also of the book of life passages found throughout the book of Revelation. Um, also, there's one in Philippians 4.3. Um, th- those book of life passages mean something that this book was written when? Well... You know, it's not a book written uh, progressively as time unfolds. It's a book that was written before the foundation of the mm-hmm. earth. Um, Pactum Salutis, the, the Salvation Pact, we've already talked about that. But the doctrine of predestination and election and foreknowledge really demands that we also believe in perseverance. So that's that's the doctrine by way of implication. Most people don't want to hear about implication. <laughs> they want to hear the explicit uh, references to this doctrine in the scriptures. Does that make right. sense? I, oh, yeah. And I'm, I don't really fault people for that. I think it's good uh, to say, where does the Bible say it exactly? Um, Philippians 1.6 is one of my favorite verses. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Who is the one who began a good work in us? Well, God is. Um, and it is God who will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Good. Um, John 17, 1 through 2, these are powerful references because they are on the lips of Jesus himself. It is not that, by the way, Jesus' words, it is not that the red letters carry more authority than the black ones in the New Testament. You know, I don't <laughs> believe that. I think the scriptures, the scriptures are inspired, be it. Uh, from Jesus' lips or through his apostles. Uh, But anyways, this is from Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The emphasis here is upon the fact that Christ came to give eternal life to those given to him by the Father. It it is not, Lord, you you, you have um, sent me in order to get them started on eternal life with the hope that they might finish it. Right. You get you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, it's eternal life that is given. Uh, John six thirty nine. Jesus again, and this is the will of him who sent me. So this is God's will that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Um, there's more to be noticed in the context there that would help strengthen this uh, one verse, John six thirty nine. Uh, but this is the will of God. This was Jesus' mission to lose nothing. Uh, to, to lose nothing of all the things that God gave to him, including people, as the context proves, uh, but would raise it up on the last day. John ten twenty eight. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. In that context also, there's an emphasis upon us being in the Father's hand too. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then First Peter 1, 3 through 5, I, I really love this verse. I think it's beautiful. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's praise here. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, he's writing to Christians, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot to be noticed in that text. Um, We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is described as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. And so all of that language um, describes to us um, an inheritance that is just, it's sure. It's not going to rot. It's not in question. And it is by God's power that we are guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time. Um, So very powerful, I think. A few more? Yeah. Um, 2 Timothy 1.12, For I am not ashamed, for for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So it is Christ who guards um, Paul's faith. Second Thessalonians 2.14, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so we have been called not just to begin in the Christian life, but to actually obtain that which Christ has earned for us. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think the emphasis here is the fact that we have already obtained it. You know, uh, I guess this could be um, set side by side with that famous passage in uh, Romans 8, where we are told that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he um, also called whom he called he also justified and whom he called he also glorified so it's that last one that's kind of surprising you know it's this idea that we have already in some ways come to lay a hold of glory Mm -hmm. and and here with with paul and ephesians 1 11 we have in some ways already obtained this inheritance that we do look forward to laying a hold of in its fullness of course but in some ways we have already laid a hold of it um there's a couple passages in Jude, too, that I think are interesting. Um, I'll read Jude verses 24 through 25. There's only one chapter in Jude where we hear this kind of um, benediction, I guess, it, 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 you know, is what it is. Um, now to him who is able to keep you. We read this as a benediction, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Frequently. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. So this is beautiful uh, doxology reminds us that uh, it is God who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it's God's work. That's the point. There's other passages we can look to, but these, I think, are sufficient to demonstrate this doctrine uh, in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what about the objection that uh, that this doctrine leads to loose living or lazy Christianity or um, an abuse of grace? Right, and that that is an objection too, I guess. Right, that um, you know, if we if we comfort people with this idea of, of the security of our salvation, that will lead some to sin. You know, thinking, well, I'm justified, I'm adopted. I, you know, I. I've, I've already obtained the inheritance. It's a done deal. Therefore, um, why not sin that grace may abound? I guess that's kind of you know the way that Paul states the, the question in Romans. Um, I think if someone raises that objection, it actually reveals to me that they don't really understand what we're saying by the doctrine of perseverance. Uh, what we're saying here is is that someone with true faith will be persevered and someone with true faith will not live in the way just described, mm-hmm. right? Because right. true faith produces works or fruit. Um, true faith also involves sanctification in the spirit. And yeah, it is true that some true Christians might struggle with that temptation for a time, but our hope and our, and our uh, expectation is that they will be moved 
beyond that state of immaturity, right? I think the thing to be realized here is that to um, to, to question this doctrine that way really reveals that um, the individual is underestimating the significance of regeneration and sanctification by the Spirit. Our, our belief is this. We do not need to to threaten the Christian with a false doctrine. Oh, if you, if you don't obey, if you don't produce fruit, if you don't work, you might lose your salvation. We don't need to use fear, right, to manipulate a true Christian. Why? Because we really believe in the power of the Word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will indeed sanctify the, those who belong to to them, and that because the Christian's heart has been renewed, obedience will flow from that eventually. It might be a quick process, it might be a slow one, there's going to be ups and downs, all of that is true, but we don't need to manipulate people with fear, saying, oh, if you don't do good enough, you might actually fall from grace and lose yourself. I, I met with um, someone not long ago who, I mean, they were they were actually just still recovering from someone abusing them in that way, spiritually speaking. You know, an influential person in their life saying, you know, you're not doing enough for Jesus. And, you know, you might fall. You might lose salvation. I, I I didn't ever really, I've never experienced that sort of thing. So I have to use my imagination, you know, to sympathize with people like that. But that it's not hard to imagine how um, devastating that sort of doctrine would be upon oh, yeah. people who believe that. You know, it, it, it would just be very, um, yeah, devastating. It, um, you'd be bound, bound by fear. At the same time, we should not give people a false sense of assurance either by teaching them another false doctrine – um, namely that doctrine which says, well, if you said the sinner's prayer at, at the Harvest Crusade, you know, back in 1970, I don't know when those started, but, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you said it, then you're good. Don't worry about the whole obedience. That's also a false doctrine mm-hmm. that we should not uh, um, encourage people with. Um, but rather we should do what the scriptures do and say, brother, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a fear of losing your salvation as if that were possible, but it's a fear of, I think, just an awareness of just how frail we are our sinful tendencies, how easy it would be for us to indeed deny Christ and to abandon him, you know? And and, and so there's the, I don't know, we're to be sober, I think is kind of the idea here concerning all the things that threaten us, our own flesh, the world, the the evil one. And we're to cling to Christ, knowing that he is the one who will give us the power to persevere until the end. Well, to kind of keep going with that, what, what, what then are we to think about those who profess Christ but st- but struggle with doubt or some sin um, who, or who seem to walk away for a time? I think we need to acknowledge that when a person bears bad fruit, it does bring a degree of uncertainty, I'm sure, to their own hearts, oh, yeah. but also to those who are looking in upon them. You know, I mean, if someone is really struggling with sin or or unbelief, it's no wonder that their sense of assurance and our sense of assurance for them is kind of damaged. Like, what what is going on here exactly? So that should be admitted. But on the other hand, I think we should be very careful not to judge people who are struggling as if we had the ability to judge in a final and decisive sort of way. I mean, we are to judge— Within the church, you know, people like to talk about not judging. They don't, don't ever judge. The, the scriptures warn us against judging, but in that final way, sort of way, right. only God can judge finally and fully because only he sees the hearts of men. So it's true we are to refrain from judging as if we were God who could, who can see all and with perfect clarity. But the scriptures are also clear we are to judge those who are in the church, you know, concerning their sin or disbelief. But even as we do that, we have to be very careful to not creep into this idea of, of saying, well, they're not saved. Right. I mean, that's, that is meant to 
be there. We need to be encouraging each other. If we see brothers right. and sisters falling, you know, or struggling, let, let's come alongside each other. The, the, you know, we need to um, encourage one another. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exhort. Uh, exhort. Yeah. Thank you. Exhort each other to to persevere. And you know, um, I think about like all of the passages that deal with church discipline. Matthew 18 lays out a pattern for church discipline for us. Um, Paul uses strong language at different places about even if a person is is in sin and unrepentant, they're to even be they're to be put out. We're not even to eat with such a one. They're to be handed over to Satan. He even says at one point, you know, my goodness, for the destruction of this flesh. The thing to notice though about all of those discipline passages is that by no means are we called to judge in that full and final way as if we can say this person is saved and this person is not. How can we make that judgment? We cannot see the heart of, of man. A church discipline necessitates that we do make some temporal sorts of judgments to the best of our ability. And if there is sin and it's not repented of, there is there does come a point uh, where an individual is to be put out of the congregation by the congregation. Uh, that is all true. But the goal of that, even the goal of discipline, this is what I think is sometimes missed in place. It's not vengeful. You know what I'm saying? It, it's not punishment for the sake of punishment. It's meant to lead people to repentance. Right. It, it's to restore. That's the point of discipline. It's to restore. And so we might look at a brother who's struggling deeply with some sin and their their hearts seem hard they seem to have denied the faith and you know in some regards and it may be you know god forbid it ever happens but it may be that that individual has to be put out but even then we're still looking at them in this way lord would you restore them mm-hmm. lord would you bring them back uh, lord show grace show mercy um uh, use this to grow them up in you and to cause them to cling to you more fully okay yeah um so I think that's it. Uh, we we should recognize the fact that sin and doubt and, and all of that it does it does do damage to our own sense of assurance, and it does do damage to other people as they look in upon us, right? And um, ask the question: Are they one of us? It does do damage, but we have to be careful about judging finally, as if we had the ability to do that. That's that's a, to get ahead of ourselves. You know, God will judge in the end, or to leave that to Him. Yeah. Paragraph 3 of chapter 17 is beautiful, too, um, in in the London Baptist Confession. I'm going to read it. I don't know how long we've been going here, but to me, this is so helpful. Um, As a pastor, it's helpful. And though they may, who's they? Well, it's the true believers, you know, the ones who have true faith. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, uh, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them. So again, we see the, the the world, the flesh, and the devil mentioned. You know, because of the strength of all of that, and the neglect of means of their preservation. It might be that a person is neglecting to do that which leads to preservation, namely uh, being in church on the Lord's day, hearing the word preached, reading the word, prayer, fellowship. You know, those means of preservation. They might have neglected them for some time. It is possible for true Christians to fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments, temporal meaning judgments in this world, but not final judgment um, upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. What, What this is saying is if someone is truly in Christ, they might even stumble in severe ways, in pretty severe ways. But if there was a seed of true faith in them at the beginning, that will lead to perseverance in the end. They will be preserved. So that's helpful to me. Should we preach against sin in the church? Yeah. Should we exercise discipline when it is necessary? Yeah. But I think these doctrines here help us to see that ministry is messy. Christianity is messy. Real Christians struggle with real stuff. And that should have an impact upon our attitude you know, towards all of this. It's just a different attitude. Brother, we'll walk patiently with you. 
we'll, we'll exhort you. We'll even discipline you because we love you, right? And our hope for you is that, that faith that you once professed, right? right? Mm. Uh, that that would return and that it would grow from this day forward. So does that, yeah, okay. I think that's the idea here. This is a, it's an important doctrine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think on the one hand, it should encourage us. God preserves us. Thank the Lord for that. On the other hand, it should motivate us to persevere. Right. Persevere depending upon the grace of God. Not your in your own strength, but persevere depending upon God's preserving work in you mm-hmm. through word and spirit. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. That's a good good conversation right there. So I've, I've really enjoyed all this entire series so far. And um, I think we're going to have one, at least one more, right? We're talking about kind of just going off this a little bit more, right? Talking about assurance. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, yeah, I was thinking through this. It, it really won't technically fall under the heading of Calvinism, I guess, okay. uh, because we've really limited our conversation to the five points of Calvinism. This isn't one of the five points. Obviously, we've covered all of those. But I, I think I would like to take an episode to discuss the issue of assurance. The question would be, is it possible for a person to know that they know Christ truly? Is it possible for a person to know that they are indeed a son or daughter of God? Uh, There have been some throughout the history of the church who have said, nope, it's not even possible. There have been others who have probably said that, yes, and it ought to be automatic. If you have true faith, you will have assurance. I think both views are wrong. and We'll get to this next time, but I think instead... Um, the truth that we need to um, flesh out here is that the scriptures teach that assurance is possible, but that it is not necessarily automatic. It's something that we have to strive for by by walking with the Lord and making use of the means of grace that he has given us. So I think that would be a really good conversation to have, and we'll take some time to yeah. do that next time. Yeah. Well, um, if you haven't already, go ahead and listen to the other seven um, parts of this this series this is part eight and uh if again like we said at the beginning email email us your questions talk to us in person yeah. uh send text messages whatever it is send us some questions if there's something that um joe hasn't said or we haven't talked about um that you you're curious about or whatever it is really on this topic it'd be great to talk about it so i agree yeah so send this send it to us anyways well thanks for listening and until next time abide in christ mm-hmm.